This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, April 4th, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, photographs from Eva Rubenstein and Chuck Davis can be seen at the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum. We reach both, and we'll hear part of that conversation later. Sometimes I've picked up people in the subway or followed a face off a bus off my, you know, far from my stop because the guy had a wonderful face. And it turned out that he'd been in one of Robert Frank's movies, you know, I mean... <laughs> You know, things just happen. First today, there is concern that Russia's war in Ukraine may trigger certain combat veterans, especially those diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. But as Ozarks at Large as Jacqueline Froelich reports, help is available. The prevalence rates for post-traumatic stress disorder among war veterans vary based on eras of service. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD found up to 20% of veterans who served in Operation Iraqi Freedom, which ended in 2011, and the Afghanistan War, which ended last summer, reported experiencing symptoms of PTSD. Desert Storm veterans surveyed showed a 12% incidence. World War II and Korean veterans predate such measures, but as many as 30% of Vietnam veterans were diagnosed with PTSD symptoms. Dr. Erin Carson is Associate Director of the Behavioral Health Clinic at UAMS Northwest in Fayetteville and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UAMS. So for veterans who have PTSD, or, or for anyone who has PTSD for that matter, uh, a, a big part of the, the diagnosis is the fact that this is something that they live with uh, for the rest of their lives. And so what that means is that they can be, as you say, triggered. He says combat veterans with PTSD are at risk for being re-traumatized. They can uh, be in a situation that, that reminds them of the trauma they suffered, and that will result in, in symptoms for them. Uh, those symptoms can range anywhere from severe anxiety uh, to what we call re-experiencing trauma or flashbacks is another, another word for that. Um, sometimes veterans or those with PTSD can uh, dissociate whenever they are uh, triggered for, from their trauma. Carson previously worked at the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville, so has a lot of experience in this realm. While I was at the VA, uh, I did uh, see a, a large proportion of patients uh, suffering from PTSD as well as depression. Uh, so that was probably my my area of, uh, of focus whenever I was at the VA. Uh, currently, my role is more administrative, um, but I do have that that background. Yes, there are certain signs that spouses, families, and friends should watch for. He says, if concerned about a veteran who may be in crisis. One of the characteristics of PTSD is that the veterans oftentimes withdraw, uh, or the, the the individuals that have PTSD will withdraw from their family and their caregivers whenever they're at a time of of increased anxiety and stress. So what you may see is just that. Uh, veterans who may be uh, no longer interacting with their family members as they as they did previously, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, having a shorter fuse. Uh, anger is often a symptom that's manifest uh, with, with triggered PTSD. Uh, most notably would be uh, clearly anxiety, uh, panic attacks, not wishing to to be exposed to to stimuli that might again uh, reawaken those those uh, memories. So avoiding the the news, avoiding the radio, 
anytime someone brings up a discussion about something that may be triggering to them, they will usually acquit themselves of that uh, discussion rather quickly. Some may sleep poorly, drink to excess, or resort to illegal drugs. Others may become overly protective, vigilant, or guarded. Dr. Carson suggests veterans in distress should call the National Veterans Crisis Line. And I can provide that number. It's 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. And that's open to veterans, civilians alike. Uh, So a family member or the veteran or the the civilian uh, can call that number 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Uh, even if they're not acutely suicidal, but maybe they're just really struggling. They can call that number and they will help... uh, help direct them to the resources that they need. Now for veterans, there is a, a number they can press that will alert the the, uh, the person answering the phone that they are a veteran and, and make sure that they ex- have access to the veteran uh, resources that are available, but, but it is not limited to veterans only. Dr. Carson says treatment options for post-traumatic stress disorder in those who are triggered vary. The most common treatments for PTSD recommended uh, nationally are the evidence-based therapies. And there are several of those that are routinely practiced at the VA, but also private uh, mental health providers and public mental health providers can, can provide those to anyone who, who needs them. So the most common evidence-based therapy, therapies for PTSD include prolonged exposure, uh, cognitive processing therapy, and uh, EMDR. Those are the ones that we see the most benefit from. EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is a new non-traditional psychotherapy treatment. Uh, Medications are also available to help ease the symptoms of PTSD, and uh, those include the SSRI medications, which can also help with depression. Uh, There are also medications that we can use to help with nightmares associated with PTSD, which is another uh, very distressing symptom. Um, In addition to that, there are a lot of experimental treatments that may not be uh, readily available in the community, but uh, we are experimenting with uh, things such as MDMA, uh, psychedelic medications, ketamine, and there are even some uh, trials going on using cannabis in PTSD treatment. Uh, There is also uh, new research on doing what's called a stellate ganglion block, which is literally a uh, a, a syringe that deadens a particular area of the brain that has, has been associated with that increased startle and fear response with PTSD. So these are all experimental treatments. I do want to be clear on that. So I would never uh, recommend anyone to seek any of those medications or those uh, drugs uh, to self-treat their PTSD, but uh, more demonstrating that there is a lot of research being done even now for uh, increasing those treatments available. Again, the Veterans Crisis Line number is 1-800-273-8255 or search veteranscrisisline.net. We'll post this information on our news web. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The University of Arkansas is naming Mike Malone Vice Chancellor for Economic Development. Since 2016, he served as Vice President for Corporate and Community Affairs for Runway Group. Malone, the former President and CEO of the Northwest Arkansas Council, will begin his new job April 18th. In a press release from the University of Arkansas, the Division of Economic Development was described as directing and coordinating the university's campus-wide efforts to expand economic opportunities and improve quality of life in Arkansas and beyond. 
Arkansas-Oklahoma Gas is launching its 2022 charitable giving grant program for qualifying nonprofit organizations that serve in its service territory. Through the program, $20,000 will be donated to qualifying organizations in Arkansas that focus on food insecurity and child well-being and advocacy programs. Successful grants will be awarded to 501c3 nonprofit organizations that focus on food insecurity and child well-being. Application information can be found at AOGC.com slash giving program. Subscriptions for Walton Arts Center's 2022-23 Broadway series are on sale now. This six-show package includes the two most recent Tony Award-winning best musicals, Hades Town and Moulin Rouge. Subscribers receive early access to tickets and other benefits. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets or more information. KUAF is supported by Gotta Hold Brewing, a destination brewery in Eureka Springs offering craft beers on tap in their tap room and beer forest. Gotta Hold Brewing is family and dog friendly. Gotahold.beer for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Some residents at Hillcrest Towers in Fayetteville say a problem with mold continues. The 120-unit public housing apartment complex in downtown Fayetteville accommodates low- to moderate-income families, seniors, and individuals with disabilities. Fayetteville Housing Authority last year completed a $3 million interior and exterior renovation, including an upgrade to the heating and cooling system. Last summer, resident Jennifer Cole says she and other tenants began to notice mold growing inside their apartments as well as water condensation. So the molds are growing above and below our HVAC units because of the moisture in the walls um, that's coming out of the HVAC units. They weren't properly insulated when they were replaced last year. Cole says she was told by the housing authority that the mold was likely only dirt and dust. She collected donations to pay for certified mold testing late last summer and again this winter. No toxic black mold was found, but four viable mold colonies were documented, according to test results furnished to Ozarks at Large. Cole, who suffers with a pulmonary condition, says she and certain tenants increasingly are having breathing difficulties. Last fall, the city proceeded with mold abatement inside Hillcrest, but Cole says the mold problems persist. I've been called into at least 15 apartments um, on random floors, and the thing is that we're all sharing these stacks. So if one person is breathing them in one stack, that means up and down, all 12 units above and below them are breathing that same air. So it, it's more than likely in all of these units because we do not have insulation in our, um, which is causing condensation. We reached out to the Fayetteville Housing Authority. Interim Director Audra Butler declined to comment by phone, but she told us through email that a preventative plan was put in place last year and that HVAC closed-loop water system disinfection was conducted. Bids for a thorough cleaning of registers, units, ductwork, as well as pipe insulation are currently in process. Butler also wrote that sampling conducted last fall by a contract environmental team found only normal amounts of mold, common in most high-rise living complexes. Butler attributes the problem to poor housekeeping by tenants who are required to clean their apartment HVAC registers and walls. Tenants, she says, can request mold testing and additional cleaning beyond routine scheduled HVAC maintenance at Hillcrest Towers. 
Hey y'all, I'm Joy McGowan. And I'm Denisha Simpson. And, and we, we are Resilient, Resilient Black, Black Women. Resilient Black Women is a new podcast that aims to demystify mental health and increase access to mental health care for all people, but especially Black women and women of color. Research shows that Black women and women of color have more barriers standing in their way of seeking mental health care including racism and discrimination, the stigma of mental health care, limited access and lack of providers who identify within communities of color. So join us on the second and fourth Friday of the month as we break down barriers and talk about resilience, grief, our bodies, and much, much more. The Resilient Black Women podcast is available at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. A new report by the American Lung Association says transitioning to electric vehicles could save Arkansans over $9 billion in medical costs over the next 30 years. Laura Turner with the American Lung Association says there are many lung-related issues linked to vehicle emissions. Factoring in all of the um, um, issues that we know are connected to pollution and um, figuring out based on that if we reduced you know, those health issues proportionally, such as asthma attacks. Um, we know that 20,300 20, avoided asthma attacks. The report also says moving to electric zero emission vehicles within the next 20 years would save nearly 900 lives, with the greatest health benefits being in communities of color. Two electric vehicle manufacturers have recently announced plans to locate manufacturing facilities inside Arkansas. And the website GasBuddy.com reports the average gallon of gas in Arkansas is four and a half cents cheaper today than a week ago. The most recent survey of more than 1,800 gas stations in the state puts the cost of an average gallon at $3.75. That's 23 cents a gallon higher than a month ago and $1.08 higher than this day last year. This is Ozarks at Large. Time to go through the archives at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History again. Randy Dixon from the center is with me. What did we just hear? Hello, Kyle. That was uh, something you don't hear much these days. Uh, it was the sound of uh, a newspaper going to press. You know, the machines running. You see it in the movies now. You don't see it a whole lot now that print is not printed that much anymore. I mean, but the, the, the Democrat Gazette only is printed on Sundays now. Exactly. It's online, as most papers are now. But uh, that sound you heard was specifically the Arkansas Democrat before it was the Democrat Gazette, and that's a whole nother story. But that was in March of 1974. You know, last week we did March of 74. Well, we're now into April, but I found so much great stuff uh, in the archives from March of 74, you gave me permission to uh, to do another round. How's that? Okay. I gave you permission. I don't do anything here, but have you show up and talk to me. So hey, you're the boss. Okay. Come on. All right. All right. Uh, and we should point out, in 1974, March 1974, the Democrat was an afternoon paper. Yes. I mean, the Gazette was the morning paper. The Democrat was the afternoon paper. Right. And my family got them both. Yeah. Wait, so did mine, and the Democrat was sort of the— Oh, it was second fiddle. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah, the ugly stepchild. Yeah. It was, it was the RC Cola to the, Dem to the Gazette's Coca-Cola. That's true. Hey, well put. Well, thank you. Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to hear more about the Democrat. Yeah, that's coming up. Right. 
All right, um, let's, let's dig deeper into March 1974. Yeah, in what made news yeah. in March of 74? Well, there was a lot I found about civil rights um, and equal rights. And, well, first of all, the, the um, Congressional Black Caucus National Organization it was founded in 71, and in 1974 they had their national convention at Little Rock. National Convention. Yes, and this was before the convention center. They had it at Robinson Auditorium because Steve Barnes from KATV was standing out in front. I remember the marquee in front of the uh, Robinson Auditorium, and this is part of his report um, on the Black Caucus. The principal question being raised about the convention is whether anything of substance will emerge. In the past, unity has been little more than a goal for the National Black Political Assembly, and already there is evidence of a polarization among delegates. There are also questions about what the convention should be doing. Gary, Indiana Mayor Richard Hatcher, chairman of the organization's steering committee, indicated he wanted less time spent passing resolutions and more time devoted to developing political skills. I think this meeting will be uh, a more pragmatic, take a more pragmatic approach uh, to the uh, question of political empowerment. We feel that uh, it is unrealistic to talk about electing a black president of the United States if you can't elect a black city councilman. I think it is appropriate uh, that uh, we are in the deep south and uh, attempting to make clear the message that political involvement and political struggle uh, must occur in all parts of this country. In speaking with reporters, Hatcher uses the word unity frequently, but does not attempt to gloss over the problems which are already surfacing. We're going to evaluate what has happened in the two years since the last convention, he said, and what we find could show us the common ground. Steve Barnes, KATV News. Steve Barnes from March of 1974, the month that had so much news, we're spending another session looking at it. All right, let's let's keep with this convention. Right. They, you know, had it in Little Rock. So what better to do than honor Daisy Bates? You know, political activist shepherded the uh, Little Rock Nine into Central High. And so they actually had a uh, celebration and honor for her at Catholic High in the auditorium. And this is where uh, she got up and spoke. That it did not take 900 and 99 persons to change the destiny of this country. It only took nine. Nine children, remember friends, united. They knew what they were doing and they knew how, how important that they walked through that door and they stayed at in this building. Daisy Bates, who soon her image will be in the United States Capitol. That's right. As that's one of right. the two, along with Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. Johnson's honored there. Right. That's right. But that's the actual Daisy Bates, obviously. And that's a whole other story yeah. that we need to get yeah. into. Um, I'm getting some great ideas yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to help. Um, more civil rights. Um, an activist that we've talked about before on this program, Jerry Jewell, who was the first African-American uh, elected to the state legislature. He was a senator, mm -hmm. but in the 20, 20th century. Right. Um, he was speaking. Uh, he was also involved with the NAACP, but he was talking to a local civic group 
uh, about economic inve- uh, advancement for all citizens. It is your responsibility, yes, if you please, our responsibility to make economic advancement and economic opportunity available to every citizen. Now, you may say, well, now, uh, we're doing this. And then my response to you is that you're not doing it. All you have to do is turn around and look at yourself, and you see you're not. And I say that respectfully. Uh, But it is our responsibility as persons who are in the General Assembly to say that every citizen in the state of Arkansas should have an equal opportunity and underscore the word equal. That's Jerry Jewell. Yes. Well, one thing I noticed, uh, this was one of those luncheon things, uh, a civic group of, I guess you would call them business leaders, but you know, they do what they're called cutaways. They show shots of the crowd while he's speaking. Every person in that audience I saw, old white male. And how dated that is. Yeah. 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 Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. Yes. So let's move on to politics. Okay. If that wasn't politics. Right. Uh, this is right. more, um, well, 74 in March, 2nd District Congressman Wilbur Mills was known as one of the most powerful people in Washington. And he had been uh, hospitalized for back problems, and there were questions as to whether he would run for re-election. So he called a news conference at the hospital. He came down to the lobby, and all the press was there. And this is what he had to say about his re-election bid. The conditions on which I predicated the fact that I would not run for re-election Having been eliminated, I do intend to file for re-election when the time opens for the filing for the Democratic uh, primary. You have to think, if this were in 2022, we were wondering whether a powerful uh, representative to Washington would be running. It would be sent out in a tweet or a Facebook message or something like that. You that's right. You wouldn't have to call everyone to the hospital lobby. Well, that's true. Just, yeah. All right. Uh, oh, but, but to we, point out. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he had his problems after that, <laughs> big problems. I mean, it was in October of that year that he was found in the Tidal Basin in D.C. drunk with a stripper named Fanny Fox. And so all of that blew up in October. But guess what? <laughs> well. Uh, he was elected again. Yeah, yeah he won the election. Uh, let's see. On let's go on to more political races. Okay. Uh, my boss, ultimate boss, Bill Schwab's my boss, yeah. but uh, it's named after David Pryor, Pryor the institute. Center, yes, yes. Um, he had lost a race for U.S. Senate to John McClellan in '72. So in '74, he again called the press to a location which was his house. They did it the announcement in his living room, but he announced for his bid for governor. I see the greatest issue in this campaign as which candidate can become the best governor and which candidate can lead the people at this time and at this stage in history of our state. There are many, there are many issues, of course, which we will be discussing, education, highways, and those many issues which we will discuss and when our platform is more fully developed. I had forgotten until you just mentioned it before we heard that cut that David Pryor actually had a race 
high-profile race that he lost. Right. And then you think back to our current governor, Asa Hutchinson, mm-hmm. who his first few races, he ran lost. against Dale Bumpers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are second actions. There's, there's always a comeback. There, well. Not always, but. but yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, but because he in, that, in yeah. that case, it was a successful campaign. You look at Bill Clinton. He lost. That's true. Uh, to John Paul Hammerschmidt. Right. He made it. Come back several times. Right. So whoever loses this May or November, don't write them off just yet. Correct. Uh, in the area of the economy, you know, we're reaching uh, the point of recession, um, inflation. Uh, so, uh, you know, the name Sheffield Nelson. Yeah. Speaking of unsuccessful campaigns for, for governor. governor. Yeah. Yes. Um, he was then president of Arkansas, Louisiana Gas Company, and KTV would always go and talk to uh, the the leaders of, of industry to, to kind of gauge what was happening with the economy, and in this case, they were talking about natural gas prices. In our estimation, there are uh, several things going to happen, and they're all bad. Uh, number one, we will not have the money to spend for exploration production that we would have spent. Uh, secondly, you'll have uh, an automatic... Uh, slow down in the amount of gas that we will be finding, the amount of wells we'll be drilling. Uh, this ultimately will result in curtailments to existing industry, and we anticipate this as soon as the uh, winter of 1974-75. Uh, the second thing it will do along that same line is it will make us uh, stop adding any new industry, which we've been adding uh, in instances in the state of Arkansas. It'll bring uh, the industrialization where uh, natural gas is a necessity absolutely to a standstill, which I think will be terrible for this state. Sheffield Nelson. From March 1974. Yes. Uh, again, on the money end, talking about dated, this yeah. this sound clip is from uh, Ben Scroggins from Commonwealth Federal. And in a very dated way, yeah. uh, he talks about interest rates and the use of credit cards. They are beginning to kind of ruin their credit because it's too easy to get. And it's so easy for a housewife or someone that's not working to go down and just charge too many things on monthly installments. And the first thing you know, they sit down and try to add it all up, and it just doesn't come out, and then they start having trouble, you know, at home, maybe not with the payments, but with their husbands. And these are the things we have to take into consideration, I think, when we're going into the credit business. What about on the good side of credit now? On the good side of credit, you know, this nation really and truly runs on credit. And if we didn't have credit and people taking care of their credit, we would be in a terrible state in the United States. And personally, I'm for credit. I, I think it's a fine thing. Uh, uh, businesses couldn't exist without it. Yeah, that. That's something. Yeah. And yeah. hey, I think enough said. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Honey, can I use the credit card? Wow. Oh, come on. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was... Dated. Long time ago. Yeah. Um, so... Again, politics, but this is sort of off the the path mm-hmm. of, um, I guess, you know, a campaign. But I found this uh, clip from Dale Bumpers, which is just wonderful. Um, you know, his father had always told him that going into public service was the most honorable position you could, you could do or path you could take. And he was— um, talking here to a civic group. He was a newly elected senator, correct? Yes. Um, But he liked to use those 50-cent words 
Um, and he does that in this clip. Um, we might need to have your militant grammarian. But here's Dale Bumpers talking about, um, I, I guess, uh, honesty in politics. Cynicism is the most insidious thing at work in this nation today. You hear people talk about there is no such thing as an honest man, as Diogenes said, and certainly if there is one, he will never go into the perfidious occupation of politics. I don't believe that, and I hope you don't. But I can tell you one time thing, that every time you say it, or every time you allow it to be said without protest, you demean yourself, and you demean this state and this nation, but above all, you demean our system. A couple of things Please want to bring up. All I'm, right, I'm, Diogenes. Right. Here's a little lesson. If, <laughs> in case you don't know, he was a Greek philosopher, mm-hmm. and uh, he was known as Diogenes the Cynic. Yeah. So that's where the cynicism comes from. It's why he never got invited to many parties. That's true. That's true. <laughs> let's not invite the cynic. Well, yeah, because yeah, it w- might have been perfidious yeah, for him here. to do so. Yes. Well, I had to look that one up. Okay. I, I'll be honest. I did, and it's deceitful or untrustworthy. So that was one of those 50-cent words to throw out there. Okay, let's keep going. All right, so that's the press again. That's the sound that that we started off with, and that was, again, in March of 1974. And that is when Walter Husband bought the Democrat Gazette. Or, excuse me, the Democrat. The Democrat. Yeah, that's way ahead. Yes. Um, but I believe he bought it for $3.7 million. 1974, $3.7 million. Yes, yes. Which probably some people raise their eyebrow because, as we mentioned earlier, the Democrat was not seen as this pivotal force in Arkansas. It was red and people subscribed to it, but it, it wasn't It was the like a pat on the head. Yeah. We'll get it in the afternoon after you've already gotten all your news. It didn't have George in the Fisher. Morning. It didn't have Snoopy. No. It it didn't have It was Orville definitely Henry. an underdog. Yeah. And it was losing money. Yeah. And so um well here's the announcement that the paper had been sold. This is first Walter Hussman, a young Walter Hussman. He was in his late 20s. Yeah, a very young Walter Hussman. Yes. And uh followed by Marcus George who's represents the company that sold the paper. Our main objective is to make the the Democrat as competitive as we possibly can. And the uh, the primary beneficiaries of that of that action will be the readers and the advertisers in this community. This is all due to uh, uh, increasing costs and things of that nature that make it more and more difficult for a uh, a newspaper to continue as strong as it, it, as, it as it should. So that the the Palmer newspapers have a considerable resources in both personnel, know-how, and so on, to uh, continue the Democrat as a as a strong uh, newspaper. One of the best things, Randy, about doing these is going back and finding things that you probably thought at the time weren't that significant. Not exactly. that it was insignificant that this paper was being purchased for a large sum of money, but you didn't know how significant this would be for Arkansas's future. Right. Right, and thank goodness Jim Pitcock from KATV had the forward thinking to, mm-hmm. to save all this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, 
You know, it was interesting for Walter Hussman back then to say, we hope we can do something with this paper. Yeah. How much has changed in that time? And I really wanted to know. So I, I called Mr. Hussman and talked to him about, you know, buying that paper and um, what kind of a risk it was. So when I was in business school, uh, you know, we would study different situations and probably the most interesting and the most uh, challenging were the ideas about taking a business that had been in decline and trying to turn it around. And so clearly the Arkansas Democrat was a real turnaround situation. And that sort of, uh, you know, that really intrigued me, excited me. I thought it was a, be a great challenge. It was a much bigger challenge than I ever imagined. And, uh, so I guess I probably was a little bit naive at the time to, you know, not considering how difficult it was going to be. And, uh, it was more aspirational. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, looking back on it, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty risky move. Late twenties too. I mean, cause Walter Hussman is still synonymous with this. Well, what became the Democrat Gazette. That's right. That's right. And he was telling me great stories. The prior center has done an interview with him. Years ago, uh, several years ago, but it was before all these changes had been made for digital. And I asked him about that, which we don't have time for, but maybe we could sure. do uh, a profile on Walter Husband next week. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Okay. That way I can combine things from the archives with, this, with the prior center interview and with this current one I did with him. We'll do that next week. Yeah, it's the state of newspapers. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Thanks for your time. Thanks. It was great to be here. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Scott Family Amazium offers summer camp experiences for kids 6 to 11 years old. This playful learning explores STEAM concepts through interactive activities. Select camps also available at the Jones Center in Springdale. Amazium.org for more. Both the Razorback softball and baseball teams are celebrating weekend conference series victories. The ninth-ranked softball team shut out Mississippi 8-0 yesterday to take two of three games in Oxford. Arkansas now 6-3 and three in the SEC. The Razorbacks scheduled to be in Conway tomorrow night to face Central Arkansas. The baseball Razorbacks, ranked as high as number two in the country, took two of three from Mississippi State at Bomb Stadium in Fayetteville this weekend. They did drop yesterday's game in extra innings 5-3. to three. The Razorbacks, now 7-2 and two in conference play, will host Central Arkansas in Fayetteville tomorrow night, then go to Florida for the next conference series this approaching weekend. The Arkansas-Fort Smith baseball team will be at Crowder Field this weekend for a four-game set with the University of Texas at Tyler. That begins Friday afternoon. This past weekend, the Lions lost three of four at Texas Permian Basin. The Arkansas gymnastics season is over. The team advanced to the regional finals, basically the Sweet 16 of gymnastics in Oklahoma City this weekend, but they came in fourth in the matchup against number one Oklahoma, number eight Minnesota, and number nine California to put an end to the season as a team. And the Razorback track and field teams are in Fayetteville this week for the John McDonald Invitational at John McDonald Field Thursday and Friday. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Born in Kentucky in 1846, Clifton Rhodes Breckenridge would become the first Arkansan to serve in a major diplomatic post. Part of a prominent political family, Breckenridge moved to Pine Bluff after the Civil War, soon being elected as an alderman. 
He was elected to Congress in 1883 and would serve 11 years, though the House of Representatives kicked him out for two years in favor of his murdered 1888 opponent, John Clayton. A key leader during Grover Cleveland's second term, Arkansas voters ousted him for his support of the gold standard. Cleveland rewarded his loyalty by appointing him as minister to Russia from 1894 to 1897. Though the amateur diplomat was awkward during ceremonial events, a historian of imperialism described his reports from St. Petersburg's as astonishingly discerning. Breckenridge later served in the 1917-18 State Constitutional Convention, unsuccessfully proposing a unicameral legislature. He died in 1932. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. You can see work from two photographers at the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum. Chuck Davis is an Arkansas-based artist, and his exhibition at the Ram is called The Wheel. He describes the 38 images in The Wheel as a project in progress, honoring and observing lands once described as Indian territory. He used antique equipment and processes for many of the photographs. The Wheel is sharing space with the Eva Rubinstein portfolio, selections from the permanent collection. She is a Polish-American artist who became serious about photography in the late 1960s and whose iconic images include portraits, nudes, and interiors in the United States and Europe. Her work has been featured in solo exhibitions in the U.S., Poland, and France. Much of her work was donated to the Fort Smith Ram. We recently reached both Chuck Davis and Eva Rubenstein by Zoom. Chuck Davis says though he's never met Eva Rubenstein in person, he was very familiar with her work. Well, Eva is a great portrait photographer. And she also photographs places, um, places where people are absent. And I find it extraordinary that in the places where people are absent, that People seem to scream from the images. Their, their presence is known. Um, there are many other things I could say about Ava's work, but those are the two things that I remark on most. I want to ask about that work, especially the places absent of people, devoid of people. Um, there's a lot of work, obviously, with light and dark. And when you were looking at these spaces to get these images, did you wait for a certain moment? Was there something beforehand you were looking for, or did you? Not in, not with the interiors. They tended to sit there quietly and wait for me to make up my mind where I'm going to photograph. And I would come upon these places. Once in a while, somebody said, oh, I know a house that you would like. And they would take me to Rhode Island, and I would meet the person who has a house that looked abandoned, but was one of the liveliest places I've ever been in. And the woman said, okay, you photograph and I'll be back in a couple of hours. <laughs> she left me alone in her house. And I took some photographs, which have been some of my sort of touchstones since. The one with the bed in the mirror, which I think is sort of known. Yes. That was right there on the first day. She left a, a dish of baby avocados on the kitchen table for me and <laughs> came back about three hours later. And found a very happy me because the whole house was full of things for me. But, you know, I didn't put them there. I just went looking around and walked up and down and found, found things, found places, found beds and windows and banisters and all sorts of things. If it's portraiture and you have a human in your picture, how, how was the approach different for you? That's that's an entirely different different thing. Sometimes I would photograph somebody I had known in a past life, you know, my theater days or something. I would run into 
uh, Giancarlo Menotti in a shop, and I would say, can I photograph you? I'd known him years before. And that led to an incredible lunch party in White Plains with all sorts of interesting people, which then led to an incredible evening with Stephen Spender and Mark, and uh, what's the name? Um, um, Isherwood, who came to my house very drunk that evening with their, their mutual boyfriend, I think. And, you know, things lead to other things. Sometimes I've picked up people in the subway or followed a face off a bus off my, you know, far from my stop because the guy had a wonderful face. And it turned out that he'd been in one of Robert Frank's movies, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, things just happened. Uh, Chuck, can you relate to that? Because some of the images in the wheel are of people. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, portraiture is some of my best best work. I, I enjoy working with places, especially of historical meaning and presence. But uh, working with people, it's it's a real gift and a joy. Uh, I think there's just so fascinating the topology of a person's face, the the mood, the character, the interpretation, the the mediation between the photographer, the artist, and their subject is so very, very important. And just, as I said earlier about Ava's work, if you if you pay attention, it screams back to you. Um, well, in my work, I'm, I'm very curious and cautious to, to worry about representation because Native people who have been my subject in the wheel have been so misrepresented. And of course, there's a, there's a very dark past involved in, in people of European descent who have you know, made their commercial interests out of native faces, Ed, Edward Curtis being, being you know, the one most remarked. Um, the, the moments between a photographer and, and their subject is just some of the most fascinating moments of my career. And it's great to have those captured and, and uh, you know, apparent in an object called a photograph and on the wall now in the gallery of the Fort Smith Art Museum. Well, I want to ask both of you about the relationship with a person because it could be someone you know. It could be someone who has a wonderful face on the subway that you have to... Either way, whenever the person is in front of the camera, it, it becomes, for me anyway, I insist on it, it becomes a dialogue, not a monologue like Avedon or something. You know, it just throws people against a wall and it's a whole different thing. Well, yeah, and I like to come halfway and have the other person come halfway. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about is because there has to be communication. And not well, there every... Isn't there isn't. I mean, look at Abaddon. He doesn't communicate. He doesn't do anything. He just makes people look as miserable as possible and then he hangs them in the museum. <laughs> I would rather have a collaboration. Of course. I mean, most of us would, but not everybody. So you know, Lisette, Lisette Modell certainly didn't. Diane Arbus certainly didn't. You know, they would take flash pictures of people on buses, and the person would say, "Please don't do that," and they would do it again and again. I mean, it's a different point of view, you know, different attitude towards people. So, I want to go back to the to the person with the wonderful face on the subway who you did not know. You want to spend time with him. Photograph well, them. Actually, a mother with two little children. Oh, okay. Amazing faces, and I just took them home. <laughs> I said, "Would you be willing to come to my apartment this afternoon?" So they got off at my stop, and we went up to my place, took the pictures, 
I got their address. I sent them the pictures. No, on, on a meeting off, you know, completely off was, I think I told uh, Mr. Davis about this, how I met Robert Frank at an opening. It was an opening for Margaret Burke White long ago, a million years ago. This was the first time I sort of crashed an opening in New York, my first year there. And it was at the old Whitkin Gallery. And I saw a man with a face and I went up to him and I said, excuse me, you don't know me, but I'm doing some portraits and I wonder if I would you know, be able to photograph you. And he said, well, I'm very busy, but I will call you sometime maybe, you know, give me, give me your number. So I gave him my little card and uh, he did call, except that he, he called on a day when I had just finished photographing Diane Arbus at eight o'clock in the morning and was soaking wet from rain. And I turned around, changed my clothes, grabbed my film and <laughs> went to photograph Robert Frank. But I didn't know who he was then. You know, that at that opening, I said, may I ask your name? And he said, Robert Frank. And I said, oh my God, <laughs> I never would have asked him if I'd known. My older brother, my oldest brother is a professional photographer. And so when I was, you know, in, in my teens, I would help him. And this was in the 1970s and it was film, right? There was no digital. So I would help him develop pictures. And I think one of the most amazing things that people can experience is seeing an image come up out of those chemicals. Oh my goodness. You're, you're mentioning and describing the moment that I got hit with photography. Tell me about That's it. That's exactly what happened to me. I was helping a photographer do photographs for a theater and there were lots and lots of people at the dress rehearsal and he had to do all the printing overnight and frame and hang everything up in the lobby for the opening night the next day. So I went back with him and helped and he showed me how to spot prints and so on. And that was the first time I had seen an actual image come up in an actual developer, not in the movie scene. And I got goosebumps and it was just an amazing moment. I will have it for the rest of my life. I get goosebumps every time I even mention it because it struck me very hard that all of a sudden you can do this anywhere. You don't need, you know, costumes or choreographers or directors or stages or language. Even you don't need anything except a camera and some film and a little energy. <laughs> and it changed my life. I mean, completely, utterly. You know? yeah, I just love so the element of a bit of surprise or not knowing exactly what you captured at the time. That happened often. I would look at a photograph and say, where did that come from? You know, there was an, an element that I hadn't even noticed at all. And there it was, you know, like little shoes in the shape of a cross next to a nun, you know, mending a doll. I never saw those shoes. But they sort of, if they hadn't been there, it would have been a weird sort of empty place completely. Chuck, are there images in the exhibit, the wheel that, that surprised you post photograph? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. I, I um, have about 160 years of photographic technique in the exhibit called The Wheel. I used a tintype, which uh, was invented, I suppose, about 1851. And I also used dry plate uh, photography that I emulsed myself onto sheets of glass. And uh, that was invented about 30 years later. 
And I did some film like Ava and I were more accustomed to in the 1970s. And then there are a couple of digital captures in the show as well. But to your point and to Ava's point about the surprise factor of uh, working with film, I went to the location of the only inland marine battle in, in the state of Oklahoma because it was a place of historical significance, a place where a uh, Cherokee had joined the Confederacy and then led the only marine battle inland to Oklahoma, now known as Oklahoma. And uh, anyway, it's a beautiful scenic location where the, the flatboat or keelboat had, had stopped uh, for a moment and he had some cannon there. In any case, the four by five film I was using that day was uh, of German manufacturer. And, and it's, it's the only manufacturer who interleaves their four by five film with a thin tissue paper. And uh, quite by accident on one, of those, on one of those film holders, I had left the tissue paper inside the film holder. So when I was pulling it apart and stuffing it in the dark, I'd accidentally left the tissue paper there. Well, that became the, the image for, for the exhibit because it created this, this curiosity and, and mystery uh, surrounding this, this particular moment in time. Would either of you call yourself a perfectionist when it comes to photography, to art? I don't really know. I don't think so. I mean, I had to satisfy myself in some way with a print, but I would sort of let the image tell me what it wanted, you know, would I want to be a little more contrasty? You've got to burn this little thing more, try again, you know, change filters in the middle of the, of the developing, I mean, of the printing. That's why I used multi-grade paper because I could, I could switch the uh, filters in the middle of a print, which was very useful. But, you know, I would print until I was happy. That was really it. It didn't have to do with perfection of any kind. It just had to do with my own sense of what, what was wanted by the, by the image. I can't speak for Eva's perfectionism, but I can tell you she's a masterful technician. I, I asked her on the phone last Sunday if she had printed the work because so often portfolios are printed by others, not by the artists themselves. And she told me she did. And I said, wow, that's, that's a... It's a really great piece of work. Her mastery over the, the object, the silver gelatin image is, is just extraordinary. Uh, for myself, I working in digital methods, it's so easy to become a perfectionist because every pixel is subject to some improvement. And in many respects, working in analog methods, uh, uh, it has greater satisfaction to me because I can let go of some of, of some of those perfection tendencies and just let the process, as Ava said, let the process speak, speak back. Chuck Davis is an Arkansas photographer whose 38 images are included in his exhibition, The Wheel at the Fort Smith Ram. We also talked with Eva Rubenstein. Examples of her photography are included in the FS Ram exhibit, the Eva Rubenstein Portfolio, selections from the permanent collection. Both open to the public through June 5th. More information at fsram.org. You can learn more about Chuck Davis and read his blog at chuckdavisphoto.com. Hey, I'm Elsa Chang. Like a good snack mix, All Things Considered from NPR News has a bit of everything. In-depth journalism, interviews with artists, stories about people's lives that make you stop and think. And 
While your mind savors what you're hearing, your hands are free to drive, fold laundry, or just sift through some peanuts and pretzels. So listen to All Things Considered every afternoon. All Things Considered today and every weekday afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the CEO of Feeding America. Um, I have I have gone to nearly 100 food bank visits during the pandemic. And some of the saddest moments I've ever had professionally ever was in those moments when members knew that they could not feed that whole line. Claire Babineau-Fontenot was in Northwest Arkansas last week, and her tour included a visit to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m., plus a new visit with the Middleton Grammarian and much more. You can also listen to the show by accessing the free Ozarks at Large podcast. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 art series presents Trivani, a classical Indian program performed by Grammy Award-winning tabla master Zakir Hussain, featuring Kala Ramnath on violin and Jayanthi Kumaresh on Saraswathi Veena, Tuesday, April 5th. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. Big, big thank you to everyone who participated in last week's on-air fundraiser at KUAF. We really appreciate your support. Had a great Friday and Friday afternoon. I think uh, I'll have to check with Sherry Ottaviano, our membership director at KUAF, but I think it was about a $50,000 day on Friday. Again, thanks to everyone who contributed this past week, sustaining members, everyone who supports KUAF. If you didn't get a chance and you'd like to, SupportKUAF.com is open 24 hours a day. SupportKUAF.com. This is KUAF 91.3 FM, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Beaver Lake. Today's show was produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich. Jacqueline also provided sound and information about Hillcrest Towers. Also, thanks to Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. He'll be back with us next Monday. We return tomorrow at noon and 7. Thank you for being here today. Don't forget, you can find past full editions of Ozarks at Large as well as individual stories and interviews at ozarksatlarge.com. And with each of those, there are links that allow you to share what you'd like with someone you think should hear them through social media or email. You can find those links at ozarksatlarge.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Talk to you again very soon.